two. It's Ken Dashow's okay. Beatle Revolution. One, two, three, four. On iHeartRadio. Beatles Revolution number 40, producer Andrew. The big four zero. The big four zero, everybody. Welcome to, and they said it wouldn't last. Well, actually, nobody said it wouldn't last. But nobody they always really say said people about it. said it wouldn't last. <laughs> Uh, the, your digital department, that's how this all started, folks. Our head of uh, digital and uh, Andrew's boss, Tony, said, uh, you know, you're such a Beatles guy. Did you ever think about doing a podcast? And I said, no, actually, I hadn't. And he said, well, everybody talks about the Beatles and Q1043 and Ken Dashow. You should do a Beatles podcast. And I said, okay, I'll think about that. And he looked at me and said, no, you should do a Beatles. <laughs> I'm like, oh, so you're act- basically you're telling me to do one. And I thought, I I don't know. It's like I have I do it on the radio. I've never done a podcast. I listen to some podcasts, and when you said I'll do it with you, that's when I thought, okay, then I can do it. If I can talk with somebody, I'll do it. And that's why I love having guests on the podcasts to talk about their experience, especially famous musicians. Like today, we have two different wonderful guests in two separate parts. We have Robin Zander of Cheap Trick, and a gentleman by the name of Little Stephen Van Zant. Pair of Rock and Roll Hall of Famers. Rock and Roll Hall of Famers right there. And both share in common an insane love of the Beatles, who both say the same thing. It's all from the Beatles. We're not musicians if it wasn't the Beatles. And, you know, every single person has said that. Billy Squire said, if you're a rocker from the 70s or 80s, there's only two types of people uh, of what they feel about the Beatles. Either they'll tell you the Beatles meant everything or they're lying. Those are the only two musicians that are possible. And the one thing about Robin Zander is, you know, there are great Beatle tribute bands like I Love the Fab Foe here in New York, and there are many that are out there. Rain are playing at Madison Square Garden, uh, the, the theater at Madison Square Garden. But to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the Chief Trick toured the summer doing Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band with an orchestra. Now, this is an established band, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They've got hits, and they toured playing Sgt. Peppers. They're putting on the pink and light blue <laughs> Sgt. Peppers jackets. No, that's they didn't dress up. They just played it, and they sang. Rick Nielsen dressed up like Sgt. Peppers. and that, Like, he's wacky looking enough anyway. They're always anyway. dressing up like something. Yeah, Rick Nielsen, the Hunts Hall look with the... Have, have you... Was, I think he had like an, an eight neck or a nine neck guitar at some point. Yeah. Well, I, there's a four neck. Right. That's his standard sort of That's issue yeah, is the four issue. neck. Yeah. But there was one that pretty much went from his neck to his kneecaps, it looked like. And I thought, you just couldn't possibly play that. I mean, it looks funny and all, but if you could actually play coherent notes on that many different guitars all strapped around your neck at the same time. I'll eat my hat. Like it's not just not happening, but they understood something we talked about years back, uh, years back, a few episodes back about when the Beatles were in Hamburg and Bruno Hochschmeier, the mob club owner says to them, mock show, mock show. Don't just stand there and play, do something. And right from the get go, cheap trick, figured out how to do something. As I we, mean, even uh, even Tom Peterson plays a 12-string bass a lot of the time. Yeah. Or maybe it's an 8-string bass, but yeah. Robin's worn little caps and stuff like this, flight caps and stuff. Um, y- you know, doing a show, 
It's a big part of it. In your band, 100,000, does your lead singer jump around? Does he move? Is it is it very static? No, he moves around a lot, and uh, he's almost gotten knocked out by my bass <laughs> more than once. Intentionally or accidentally, Mr. Accidentally. We've talked about this before. He, yeah, I just uh, want to make sure. He closes his eyes and does his thing, and there's been a lot of close calls. That, that bass is going to win any collision. Oh, for human flesh, yes, yeah. as you're playing. It's a Warwick. It's like 14 pounds. It's basically <laughs> a tree trunk that I wear around my neck. Uh, you know, that John Entwistle was always asked, why do you just stand there? And, he's, and he always said, this, this bloody lunatic next to me is swinging the mic like a helicopter. I'm not moving. Like, I'm not moving. I'll move off the stage, but I'm not moving any right. closer to it. He's jumping. The The three of them are jumping. He's swimming, swinging a microphone. I'm just going to stand still. Thank you very yeah. much. Yeah, I stand at the front of the stage as much as I can, but sometimes just just for his safety, for the singer's safety, I... You back up. I mean, if if one guy's going to back up, part of being in a, in a band is knowing your role, the bass player should be the first one to back up. I agree. I agree. It's kind of... Not that it's a musical pecking order, but it's just feels like the right thing to do yeah be, go back with the rhythm you're section. not you're not the lead right if you are it's a different story if you're staying you don't move back but if you're andrew in one hundred thousand, you move back when it's time so uh robin zander is going to talk about cheap trick this as we're recording in april of 2018 is the 40th anniversary of them live at the budokan in japan this live album that they all hated that they thought sounded like crap that they didn't want released as it usually happens in rock and roll that that thing you hate the most like Jim Kerr and Simple Minds hating don't you forget about me and being forced unless to be sued to, for their lungs to record it becomes the greatest break in the world for you that you don't know at the time so and this album is what launches their career into the stratosphere if that live album didn't come out in 78 there's no way they have the career they have. They just don't. And you know, you listen to some of the songs. You listen to I Want You to Want Me on the album. It's flat. Mm -hmm. It's flat. It's a good song, yeah. but it doesn't have any energy. The live album, you felt their crazy live energy. And that's hard to do, to come through, you know, to really break through and make that happen. Um, say the same thing for Bruce Springsteen. Something that we talked about when we were getting into the music business segment with uh, John Bulos and Sammy about how people are excited about a band and everybody keeps talking about you got to see this band and that's how the buzz starts and the record company will find you as opposed to the other way around. That was the thing about the Jersey Shore. You got to see this guy who writes poetry like Bob Dylan and there's jazz and this guy, David Sanctious, is playing this gorgeous like jazz keyboards and all this stuff and and he's jumping around the stage and they're doing old rock and roll and poetry and nine minute songs. And the word gets around. And you start, the word gets around. And then there's a John Hammond who found all these amazing artists from, uh, from Lady Day to Bob Dylan who goes, who hears this tape of Bruce Springsteen and says, man, I get the Dylan connection. He's not imitating Dylan, but he's breaking the rules. Let's take a chance and make an album. You know, and, and off you go. But it's always been a great show. When you see Bruce Springsteen, no matter what it is, even on Broadway now, just him, it's a great show. You're mesmerized. You're transfixed. Yeah, and it was interesting hearing Stephen talk about some of this stuff because now Stephen has a record label. He's had it for some time. And so it's little Stephen who's discovering artists. And he's talking about 
about what some of the bigger labels aren't doing and some of what he has done in his career on that side of the aisle. Uh, his Wicked Cool Records starts a lot of young bands and gives bands a chance, but they have to fit into the style of what he likes, which is basic garage rock, rock and roll, greasy. He's not signing a prog band or a keyboard band. He's signing what he hears of is like early rock and roll sounds. You know, four piece, you can have a keyboard, but it's got to be a rockin' piano or rockin' organ. It can't be, it's not going to be Renaissance. He hates Prague, and that's a discussion for another day. We've had, we haven't had discussions over it. We've had hours of that. We've had bottles of wine that have gone way past their, their usage, just trying to get through a discussions of he, he looks at rock and roll being this, and I see it as a much but he had, format. But he had no problem taking Big E's uh, Sgt. Pepper's vinyl. Yeah, are we allowed to home. announce that that he he didn't steal he didn't steal Biggie's Sgt. Pepper's vinyl. Biggie kind of sort of gave it to him, but he made it clear he, it was wanted. And I don't know if it's just because of all those years of playing Silvio Dante mm -hmm. or Frankie the Fixer and Lillehammer. I think Eric just said, "Well, if he wants it, I'll just give it to him," because that's easier than dealing with. Tony Sirico or Paulie Walnut's coming over to my house. So I don't understand how you can be into Sgt. Pepper and hate Prague. He, uh, he, he's into Sgt. Pepper's, but he loves the first few records more. Yeah. You know, it's, it's as the Beatles grew away from She Loves You and Please Please Me, he grew away from them as well. And yet... He dresses like the coolest George Harrison guy. He's in with Indian-style clothing. And backstage, if you go to his backstage dressing room, you would think it's George Harrison's dressing room with Indian silks and lights and incense and all that. I'm like, so if you're like this, what's with you don't like prog rock? You know, and that's been another discussion that's gone a long way. But listen, he loves great songwriting. He loves great performances. And we talk with Stephen about how you get going. And we just got caught a big thing about managers. And he had a great line. He talked about advocates. And I, no one had ever said that word before, but that's a great word. Uh, your band, 100,000, needs to find an advocate. Somebody who just believes in you and will stop at nothing. Like he talked about Brian Epstein. Beatles are great. The Beatles are the greatest band in the world. Yes, and he, Brian got left out of every office of every record label in London for thinking these four idiots from Liverpool, where the chimney sweeps come from, are a band or musicians. And he didn't stop until he finally went around a second time. And we talked about the stroke of luck of somebody said, why don't you give it to the comedy producer at EMI who makes the Peter Sellers comedy records? And that changes the world. But somebody's got to do it because the band can't just send out you know, tapes or cassettes or, you know, these days you would send out an email with a link to one of your songs and you go, thanks. Somebody's got to keep on, hey, have you seen this? Have you seen that? And I know from my wife, who's an actress and all your young actor friends, if you say, here's my headshot and resume, you know, a casting agency or a producer or a manager or an agent will go, yeah, okay, thanks. 
But if every month you're sending out, hey, see me in billions, I'm playing this part, and it's a good part. Hey, catch me tonight on Bull, I'm going to be in this part. Hey, catch me in the new movie, in the Adam Sandler movie, I've got a great funny thing with him as a waiter. When, if you keep sending that stuff out, an agent will go, really? This guy's getting work on his own? Hey, uh, who represents you? Yeah, come in and talk. And I see the parallel exactly between actors and musicians. As a performer, you've got to do this work. You've got to make yourself known. You've got to create a buzz about you. And then, I think, as you'll hear Tom Peterson talk about, they had an advocate. Robin Zander. Yes, Tom Peterson. Thank you. Robin Zander. There's not that many you guys. You got bass players on the mind. Yeah, exactly. With Robin Zander, their guy was Jack Douglas, who produced John Lennon and Aerosmith, who calls... CBS and goes, you got to sign these guys. And you'll hear him tell the story of why it didn't work. And they go, yeah, no, that's okay. Never mind. They, it didn't work. And uh, we don't think that much. But he says, okay, then I'm going to go to RCA with it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's give us another day. But you need somebody who's got the leverage of that to go, okay, you don't have to sign them. I'll take them across the street. And that gets them signed and they get going. And I think it's harder, as Stephen will point out, it's harder than ever in 2018 to find that guy. It doesn't mean you give up, but... One thing that I love that Stephen talked about was how the first deal is always the bad deal. Yes, good point. That's the deal that you... that. Chuck Berry was killing people, was punching people in the face over for 40 years after he signed it. Right. Um, <laughs> but then... What you get from that, and, and little Steven talks about what he would have liked to say to Chuck Berry if he knew him a little bit better, that might have made Chuck think of his career and think of that bad deal. As a whole, and not just living on the bitterness of that. And I know entertainers, there are comedians who are world-famous comedians who are just bitter, angry men because they never forgot how they got screwed those first five years and all of the joy and success that followed the next 50 never made up for it. And that's a, that's a sin. In, in, every, in every walk of life, it's not even just show business. You know, it's get for a young band starting out, did the Beatles have a great deal? No. When they had the leverage, they got a little more. And Paul McCartney got a little more. And he, now he's jumping record companies to get better deals. He's moved three times from, from uh, Starbucks to Concord and back to Capitol just to get a better deal. Why? Because he can. You know, it's like, hey, what's it going to be? No, he doesn't need the money, but he wants better distribution. He wants more saturation. He wants to be in charge of things. And, you know, you have the right to do it as opposed to being, you know, back when we were making $8 zillion for them and they didn't give us, you can live on that anger or you can just say, well, it got me where I am. And, you know, that's the lesson, I think, from both of these guys, from from uh, Robin Zander and from Little Steven. That will be this Beatles revolution, how you get going in the music business, and how you have to learn to enjoy it. A lesson for you, young Andrew. I want you to want me. In the studio with me, one of the great voices in rock and roll, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Robin Zander from Cheap Trick. Thank you for joining us. Holy cow, I'm having breakfast with the Beatles. How about that? <laughs> yeah, you, you guys seem to like the Beatles just a little bit. Um, 
for Cheap Trick, here's the thing. There are Beatle tribute bands, and our favorite here in New York being the Fab Faux because they're great session guys who play. But I don't know any band who are Rock and Roll Hall of Famers with the stature and the hits that Cheap Trick has that decide on the 40th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band are going to tour and do Sgt. Pepper's with an orchestra. That are true. Those are true Beatle fans. You guys absolutely rock that. Well, I I have to be honest about that whole situation. Uh, it wasn't our idea. Uh, we got a phone call actually from uh, the manager of the Hollywood Bowl. Nice. And he asked us to do it because the orchestra had done it earlier, without a singer or without a rock band. They just did it with a full orchestra. So he's had the idea of having a rock band, and of course he thought of Cheap Trick because we'd already covered. Various uh, Beatles. He knew the history of of us with George Martin and all that. So right. So he's the one that had the idea. Gave us the call. We rehearsed a couple days, and that was it. We were at the Hollywood Bowl uh, doing the Sgt. Pepper album, and we invited some guests, some friends of ours, to come along, and we did it uh, a few times. My, <laughs> my my first my first inclination of how much you love the Beatles was listening to live from the Budokan. Which, by the way, 40th anniversary this week. How about you? Yeah. You're on top Robin, of things. 40th, and I remember hearing, hearing Rick play the, the notes from Please Please Me yeah. in the middle of a song. Dee, 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 dee. Yeah. And I stopped and went, oh my God, they're Beatle geeks. Yeah. Oh my God, they're yeah. Beatle geeks. There's no, you would never have done it if, you're not, if you don't know it cold and you know you that's, have to throw that's it That's very true. I mean, I think any musician coming up with us was a Beatle geek in some form or another. And the truth is, is I take most of the responsibility for that, really. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Beloit, Wisconsin until I was eight years old, moved to Rockford, Illinois. I was born in Rock County. I lived on the Rock River. (laughs) I mean, I was rock before I was rock. How many ways can life tell you this is what you're going to do? That's right, here's what you're going to do. But yeah, um, I remember distinctly the first time I heard... uh, Please Please Me on the radio. was uh, I was coming home from camping with my folks in Devil's Lake, Wisconsin. And that was the beginning of the end of me. And then then it was Bleecker Street and uh, coming out of, uh, 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 where, what state was that from? Little Rock, Arkansas, actually. Okay. It was like WLS radio. It covered the whole country right, almost. Right, right, right. And they played everything from Beatles to the Stones, the you know Kinks, and the, all the bands that it, uh, Ferry across the Mersey and all that right. stuff was Jerry happening the there. So that's that was me. Everybody who has come through here and sat in this chair has told me the same thing. Billy Squire said, "Look, there's two. If you're a classic rock guy, '70s, '80s, there's only two type of people: people who say the Beatles meant everything, and those who are lying to you. Because if you're if you're playing music, if you understand chords, and you're writing rock songs, we all learned from the greats. Randy Bachman." has said, every interview, he said, people ask me, do you ever have any formal music training? He said, yes, I bought Beatle records. Yes. I had a guitar and a record player. That was my formal yes. music training. What is this note? How do you do this? Yes. How do, oh, look, this comes here. There's a counter melody? Now, what's that? And you pick them apart, and that's how I taught myself to write songs. And he's right. And, and when you say the Beatles, you actually mean that era because... Along with the Beatles came the Animals and the Rolling Stones and the Kinks and these great bands that just, it it was just, you became a sponge and it absorbed all this great uh, British invasion. 
and there's so much what we're talking about all these amazing groups who have been influenced by this band that changed the world and they changed musically and harmonically and songwriting and production and we we've we all, we know a lot of that story but one of the things that really caught me, John Lodge of the Moody Blues, now yes. a fellow Rock and Roll Hall of I, Famer I with know you. Him. I you know him. John, what a lovely guy. He, great. And he, he told the story. So they're the hot local Birmingham, England band, like you were in Wisconsin mm-hmm. and in Rockford, Illinois. And he said, you know, we're the headliner of the club. And one night they say, no, you're going to be the opening act tonight. There's a band from Liverpool. They got a deal. They're going to be a headliner. Yeah. Like, what are you talking about? Liverpool? This is Birmingham. Yeah, well, they got a record deal and they're going to do it. And we were, what was it? It was like, you know, El Diablo. It was El Diablo and the Sombreros. <laughs> so the stupid, and they had Sombrero hats and playing surf music. Uh-huh. You know, as stupid an act as any four 17-year-olds could come out with. And he said, here's the thing. You have to understand this thing that we've all taken for granted. Our whole lives as kids, there was so-and-so and the so-and-sos. Elvis and the Jordanaires, Buddy Holly and the Crickets. There was Little Richard on the piano. There was Chuck Berry and a guitar. There was always a guy in front who's handsome and two, three, four musicians behind him making music. And when the Beatles came up, he goes, it was the first time I had ever seen three mics in front. He goes, this thing we always take for granted, a couple of guys, the guys in front and a drummer in the back. He goes, I'd never seen that before It was in my never life. done before that. And I ne- he really stopped me cold with that of like, and as he said, I like, wait, which one's singing? Wait, he's singing. No, wait, the other guy. What do you they mean? All They're sing. all singing? They all write songs. They all are singers. They are all are players. You want to I talk mean, about a, a game change? Yeah, it really was. And, you know, I got to tell you, uh, the Moody Blues, there's a version of me singing Nights in White Satin with a full orchestra. I've seen as it. As Rick's father conducting. I've seen it. Have you seen it? I yeah, have. It's online. I'm going to post. Do you mind if I post I that? I don't mind at all. You I'm wearing the it. most ugly suit you've ever seen. <laughs> you killed it. Yeah. Listen, you've got one of the great rock voices oh, of all time. I appreciate it. You do. That. I'm not telling you anything you no, don't I know. I appreciate From that, From the though. day your music came out till today, I have never done, I've been doing this my whole life too, I've never done a radio shift without playing one of your songs. Oh, well, thank you. And I, and I, I love it, but it's not because of me. It's because yeah. the audience, that every generation of audience hears great music and does it. And today happens to be a remarkable anniversary. Do you know what happened 42 years ago today? 42 years ago Mr. today, Sander? Cheap Trick probably formed right around then. You no. were playing a bowling alley called Sunset <laughs> Bowl. That's, that's in exactly Waukesha, right. Today Wisconsin. is the anniversary of that? Can you believe this? I'm telling you this. That's why I'm so psyched that you're here. Do you know who came to that bowling alley? I do. Do you want to tell the story? You tell the story. A man came to that bowling alley with his family who happened to live in Waukesha, Wisconsin, where this bowling alley, the Sunset Bowl, exists, <laughs> and uh, he came up to us and he introduced himself and he said, "Hello, uh, my name's Jack Douglas." And immediately we kind of knew what that name Jack meant. That meant Aerosmith. Aerosmith. Yeah, he did John Lennon. That, solo that meant work. Yoko and John to yep. us. So we thought, "Oh my God, you're kidding me!" And he said, "No, I love you guys, and I I'm gonna." Uh, I'm going to bring some people to come and see you. So he, he called, when he got back to New York, he called Columbia Records and had them send out some of the representatives to see us. And um, we were so excited. And that, that night we were supposed to play, uh, Columbia Records came to the show and Bunny tripped over a trap case and broke his arm. No, yes. no, no. I don't yes. know that story. Yes. You, Bunny. He, that night he broke his arm. So 
guys, let we me, couldn't let me do set, the show. Let me set the scene again. So it's your big showcase, yes. and your drummer breaks his arm. Yes. Going to, oh. Yes, he broke his arm. So oh. they all went back to New York, and we kind of said, okay, well, we'll get another. So we had two drummers for a while. Uh, Hammer and Hank Ransom from Philadelphia <laughs> was, was helping us out. <laughs> Hammer and Hank Ransom. That's him. If you're Can't listening, Hank, I hope you just... <laughs> <laughs> I hope you appreciated that. Anyway. Can't make it up. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. So that went by it's about six weeks until Bunny healed. And then they, we uh, got another phone call from Epic Records, which was the sister company for CBS right. you know, Columbia. And uh, they came out to see us, and we got signed. And that's, that's why, because of Jack Douglas. And here's the thing. When people say, man, you were so lucky. You know, Jack Douglas goes to visit his family and walk his show, and they go, you got to see this band in the bowling alley. you yeah. got to see this band in the bowling alley. But here's the parallel. That's the most important point I want to drive home for every young band out there. Okay, so they got lucky because the bowling alley was packed, and Jack Douglas was blown away by this band in the bowling alley. And Brian Epstein, is, is this kid says, hey, you got to go see this band in the Cavern Club, Mr. Epstein. They're great. And he goes, the point is... You can go and say, eh, whatever, and walk away. The point is, you had worked so hard, and we're at such a high level already, that you blew, you, your lucky break comes because you're so talented, you have so much to offer, that that's what it is. When people say, how do you get a manager? How do you get this? How do you get a deal? The point is, you're so good, everybody's talking about you. They have no choice. They have to sign you. I'm told Jack Douglas said, listen, if you don't sign him, I'm bringing him to RCA. He did. Like, right? And then they go, yeah. yeah, no, that's not happening. This is yeah. not slipping through our fingers. I believe it's even more than that Tell for me. a young artist. Uh, for it, Just speaking from my own experience of going through all that is because we really loved what we were doing. There you go. We loved it so much. We had such a passion for it because we all had been in bands before we got together as a band. Different bands here and right. there. And it was fun and, you know... But when we rehearsed the first time, we were in Rick's garage for about three days and rehearsed. All of us sort of looked at each other and knew what was going on there. You know, you heard it. Oh, we knew it. It was there. So, and when you have that feeling about something, then it shows, and 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 the hard work all pays off. But at the time, it doesn't seem like hard work. It seems like just it's fun. just fun. Yeah. But you. You know, it's the thing I always try to pass along. I, I built, I'm the kid who built the high school radio station selling cupcakes and pizza to buy a transmitter. And why did you do that? Because the thing I love more than anything there in the world. Go, and here I am, you know, doing this my whole life, and I still never worked a day in my life because I get to come here and do this thing I love. When you walk on stage, there's work that goes into getting there and doing it yeah. and maintaining it. But the performance part for all of us is the joy of this. My wife's an actress. The the hardship that she goes through to get a part, but when she's on an HBO thing and, or she's working with Barry Levinson, this Academy Award, that's oh, yeah. the joy of it. It's worth all of the work oh, yeah. to get to the point of doing the work. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing. Like you how here's another point about the Beatles, because we had just covered their Hamburg days. How often did you guys rehearse and play as you were starting out? We just rehearsed those first three days. Uh, we all knew enough songs to do a good hour, hour and a half set. Um, so we didn't really need to rehearse much. We just did. We did songs we all knew, and if we stumbled a few times, that was okay. You know, we we always said to ourselves, our mistakes are better than anything we could think of anyway. <laughs> right. And and you know that was part of the part of the scene for us was just to have fun. And we do little things. That, Rick had this one thing where. 
he'd call the carnival game and and he would ask girls to get up on stage and sit on his face and he'd guess their weight. It's <laughs> like just oh. junk like that. It never worked, but it was funny. But you, know? you got the point across. Yeah, and then and, and you know. Uh, we changed our name a lot back in the early days because uh, we were kind of a rowdy band where Rick would bust tiles out of the ceilings and the club owners would get pissed off and, and not want to hire us back. So we'd change our name to something. We had, we had a name, the Randy Men. <laughs> and uh, we'd, you know, get in that, or the Horny Bulls was another one. <laughs> so how'd and you we, settle on Cheap Trick? Uh, I don't know. It was just. Just uh, came. It was one of those names. Right. You know, and and it, that's the one that And that's the one we kept, yeah. When you get there. So the thing about Live at Budokan, this album I have never stopped playing, that the story was that Epic didn't re- really want to put it out. So like, you're not that popular. Why would we do a live album? Is that rock and roll that's urban part of myth? The story. Or? The part of the story. The, the real story was that our manager didn't really want to release it, because, and the band didn't really like the record that much. You didn't? No. Really? We didn't think sonically it was worthy for an American audience. Uh, our man, we didn't think the cover. We thought the cover sucked. We didn't like that. <laughs> it, and our Is manager there anything goes, about Don't worry. it you did like. Yeah, no, the, <laughs> the songs were good. Yeah. The, but the manager we had at the time said, "Don't worry, you guys." It's not going to be released anywhere else but Japan, and this is like a love letter to Japan. Nobody's going to know anything about it. I think it was just trying to appease us because we right. were upset about it because we just spent our last ten grand making the record, <laughs> you know. And it was live record, so it's like, oh god, you know. Uh, thank just, you, Japan, and we left. And then all of a sudden, it, it turns up as this is kind of a racist thing, but it turns up in the UK as Kamikaze Yellow Vinyl. <laughs> And it sold out, and it went on import into Canada. Huge. And so they released it in Canada, and they released it in the U.K., and it became a double platinum album in Canada before it was even released in the States. So I think the state side waited and, okay, well, we got to release it now. So when they released it in the States, it just went it went wild. Robin Zander, my guest here at Q1043 with the Beatles. Um can I ask you a personal question, Mr. Zander? Um, when you hear, I want you to want me now, which is played on this radio station and every rock station in America since the day it came out, ha- have you perhaps found a way to like it? Has it has it improved with age? Would you say now it's not too bad? Um, I always <laughs> like the song. You don't. You still don't think it's a great recording? The the Budokan is yeah I guess it's grown on me you know it and it's I think, raw it's yeah, honest it's raw the, the pa- I'm telling you I still have ears yeah. the power of your band comes through yeah. from the minute I put it on yeah. for all that's wrong or right and yeah. it needs more bottom and yeah. it's too compressed forget all that yeah that you know the Stones get it right there are some great bands that are alive and they've never been able to capture it yeah. From the minute we come out, ain't that a shame? Yeah. Boom. You're, yeah. you're in your face. You go, this is a band I have to see. Well, that's that, what it's that, I think, is desperation coming through. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when we talk great records, and think about, we, it goes back to the Beatles when we talked about what they did in Hamburg. They were standing there just playing, yeah. and this crazy German, you know, mafia nightclub owner screams yeah. at them, mock show, mock show. 
And what? So they just start jumping around and doing Elvis and running around the stage and just like you said, doing carnival stuff. Yeah. And suddenly everybody goes, you got to go see these guys yeah. in the bowling alley. Yeah. You got to go see. They're playing the Indra Club. Nobody was there. After three yeah. weeks, they had to close it down because so many people came. And that's on you as a showman and as a musician. Well, believe me, we, we were serious about our music, but live we had fun and it showed, you know, and we still do. We still, those grooves. You know, we're still known as a good time band. You go see Cheap Trick, you're going to walk away with a smile on your face, even if you don't like our music that much. I mean, it's going to be fun for you. I mean, with the multi-neck guitar. People have always told us that. Right. Rick, with the multi-neck guitar oh, yeah. and the clothing and the crazy oh, yeah. clothes. Like I, So I got it that this is a band. Here's what I know. This is a band that doesn't take themselves too seriously, takes the music seriously, and rocks out, and I'm going to have a smile on my face That's beginning right. to end. That's right. That's Cheap Trick. 40 yeah. years ago... Uh, this week, you recorded live at Budokan. Now, yeah. the story what was that? Were you the first rock band that had played there? There hadn't been many rock bands. No, we weren't the first band that ever played there, but we were the first band that played there after they closed it down to rock people because there was a big incident. Uh, I think it was uh, Deep Purple. Mm -hmm. I want to say it was Deep Purple, where they had a riot there that killed uh, some people. Um, they got trampled or something. I don't yeah. know the r real story about that, but... They stopped having rock shows there because of it, and we were the first ones to come back and be able to do a rock show at Budokan. Because there was some pushback, right? Like, we, we don't want you guys there. We don't want to hear that there. And it, it was because of that reason. Right. But even just the sound of the audience, the anticipation, the screams oh, yeah. as you take the stage. Well... Chills. I get it, chills. It was, it was unbelievable when we got there. I mean, we pulled up on an airplane on the tarmac, and there were thousands of kids on top of the roof of the <laughs> of the airport. Wow. With signs. We thought the president or somebody was there. We didn't Like, you couldn't be for us. Couldn't be for us. You know, it's all in Japanese. We don't read Japanese. But How did they know about Cheap Trick, or did it not matter? It was just a rock band. No, they they knew everything about us, and how did they? How do you think they knew? It be, it was because I know why. It was because in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, we were hired. I don't even know how we got the gig, but we were hired to open for Queen. Oh, and Queen were huge there. This is seventy six, maybe. Yeah, no, maybe 70, earlier. Okay, maybe seventy five. Okay. I don't know. But anyway, they they in Japan they have these comic books and and queen was huge queen and kiss were both huge in these comics right they wrote about them these wrote stories about them made up all the stuff and uh because of that show there was a lot of press there and rick had done interviews with some of the people and i'd done some interviews so after that they went back to J japan and they incorporated us in this queen story as being like their younger brothers or oh. they made up all this stuff about us you know it's the greatest gift you guys ever could it have was had. unbelievable all of a sudden <laughs> we were known in japan you know it's brilliant yeah oh, that's fate smiling upon hard-working musicians that's there you go and then we did three three shows i think with queen that uh, that really that's started that ball rolling i think what was that like tell me about freddie and brian and playing oh i shows. never knew freddie much but i got to know roger real well yeah and uh i went to his house a few times you know and he's he's a wonderful gentleman he treated us great you know he's he kind of took us under his wing a little bit you know and it was really cool you know one of the good guys in out there yeah, there, there's plenty. You know, yeah. there's there there's a lot of them. I guess Robin Zander, uh, with me in the studio. It's not a, a coincidence that you guys are such big Beatle fans, and the songs are so well written, so well structured. 
chord structures. You talked about hearing the Beatles first on the air. When you when we get like from the early Beatles, what I've always felt is, you know, they reach the pinnacle. They change the world with the mop tops. Mm-hmm. You know, they have the top five singles in America. Mm-hmm. And what's the next thing you do? You fire that band. Mm-hmm. You get rid of the mop tops and you completely change the band in Rubber Soul and Revolver. Mm-hmm. And then you fire those guys. Well, remember before touring. the mop tops and the suits, there was the greaser band. Right. And, yeah, and they we, fired them too. Right. We started out with like, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> as everybody looked like in the quarry men in the early days, yeah. and you know, they had the leather jackets yeah. and, and the slick back hairdo. Yeah. And then you get to Hamburg looking like Teddy Boys. Yes. And you meet the hipster people in Hamburg, Astrid, and she goes, let's change your hair, let's change your look, yeah. change your suits. Yeah, it's amazing, you know. Tell me about your first experience hearing Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, your young musician. It wasn't my favorite record, i got to be honest. No, tell me But I love the cover and I love the concept. Right. My favorite records at the time that still probably are were Revolver and Rubber Soul. Yeah. But the Sgt. Pepper record became their most important record somehow. I don't even know what happened, but it really changed music at the time. It it became more psychedelic. It became, you know, I remember the the Stones suddenly came out with the Satanic. Satanic yeah, yes. you know, and and it was like, wow, this is really cool. And uh I I gotta be honest though, when I first heard it, I was a little disappointed. I just uh, thought that that uh the poppiness of the Beatles sort of lost its luster in a way right that it was something completely different, different and yeah. a different sound and but then then looking back on it now i uh, i love the record of course we we did a tribute to the record obviously right did you and when you when you wind up when you're singing the beatles uh you know and you're you're not it's not an impression of the beatles you're not no. singing like john or like paul no. you're singing like you do you hear other things as you pick apart there's a difference between listening to it and playing it I'm, I think it's an emotional thing. I yeah. think the lyric and everything about it, as long as you stay as true as you can to the melody, um, you don't have to really worry about the sound of your voice or the inflections of how you say the words. It's just the emotional part of it has to be there. Right. It was such an escape that was happening in the 60s, but everything was about, let's leave here. Let's find it another place. Yeah. And a guy you've worked with who's so much a part of that story, Jeff Emmerich. Yeah, Jeff you know, is very cool. Jeff has been here and he said, you know, I was too young. Thank God I was too young to realize what they were really asking. You know, I've got all my, I've sharpened my grease pencils and tape boxes and I've, you know, sharp razor blades and I'm ready to work. And John Lennon walks in and says, Jeff, we're going to make an album that's never been made before. I wanted to have a different sound on every record. No guitar the same, no voice the same. And he goes, and I, I was just naive enough to say, yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah, he's like a, a painter. Uh, he said, sitting right where you are, he said, I always think of it as colors. Yeah, that's true. He told me the same thing at Air Studios when we were doing the All Shook Up. You did your yeah. All Shook Up. Oh, yeah, George Martin produced it, and Jeff uh, was the engineer. It sounds great. Yeah. That's absolutely a, a killer, yeah, killer we've song. We recorded it in Montserrat, uh, the island. At George's place. At uh, Air Studios 2. Yeah. And then came back to London and did the mixing and uh, the orchestration stuff there. Do you mind telling me about George? Tell me a little bit about working with George Martin. He is something, man. God bless him. He he is a perfect gentleman. I mean, he is. Um, he's a guy that's extraordinary, just in his own way, he he could listen to the telephone ring and tell you what key it's in. He could, <laughs> you could sing 
a, a melody and he could write it as you're singing it. You know, wow. stuff like that that nobody else can do or would. He He's just a naturally gifted man. And uh, he loves Faulty Towers. He had every episode there so we could have something to watch. Perfect. <laughs> so I love him even more I now. know, me too. I thought the same thing. You know? <laughs> Simple. Simple. And his wife is just wonderful too. I mean... Uh, Really great. Robin Zander, my guest in the studio. What's next for Cheap Trick? Where, where are you heading to next? Uh, we've got a tour this summer. We're out uh, and uh, we're with various groups like uh, Def Leppard and Poison and Journey. Uh, we go to the UK uh, in, the, in the winter before Christmas. But before that, we're going back to Japan and we're going to Australia. So it's a regular year yeah. for Cheap Trick. You know, We usually make the rounds. You still love it? Is it still yeah. fun hitting the stage and, and rocking them? Yeah, I, I do. And it comes through in the music when you really put your heart into it. You know, I see McCartney at this point, and he still puts in everything oh, he's Oh, yeah, got. I saw him on tour this year, too. It was amazing. He's doing almost a three-hour show. Yeah. Doesn't take an intermission, not a sip of water. Yeah. You know, I talk to the guys in the really band. Really cool. Tributes to his mates, you know. Always. Uh. And, you know, Brian Ray, his guitarist. Yeah, I know to, Brian real isn't well. It? Yeah, he's, he's a dear a great friend. Guy, yeah. Great guy. And he's the one who sat here and he said, you know, here's the thing. I said, do you ever get blasé? Do you ever forget what you're doing? He goes, no, because the the boss isn't just standing there like dead, you know, taking a puff of his cigarette right. and going, oh, let's do this. He goes, the boss is standing with you going, hey, guys, come on. Yep. Got to really rock them tonight. Yep. Come on. We got to knock them out. Yep. Let's go. Come on. We got to get. He goes, he's so excited yeah. about playing. He goes, which in, he, this is a great line. He said, I said, what's your favorite place to play? And he said, I know, I can tell you for sure. Our favorite place to play is the place we're playing that night. <laughs> That's a good Whether answer. Whether it's Madison Square Garden or we're playing a bowling alley in the middle of Yorkshire. Good answer. And I thought, that's it, isn't yeah, it? That's, that's it. That's what makes you great. That's I've why I've got an interesting years. little tidbit for Cheap, cheap Trick News. Tell me. Um, we are doing another record. Congratulations. Yeah. And we've, uh, well, we've done three in the last two years. Well, the last time I saw you, you were up here with Hey Lady. That's right. Hey Lady. Yeah. We've got, uh, we did a Christmas record, was our last thing. Okay. It came out at Christmas time. But now we're we're interested in doing another record. And uh, we've got this uh, idea to do uh, a kind of obscure Lennon track to cover it. And... It's because of the politics today that we decided to do this because the lyrics are more apropos now than they ever were. Right. And that's the song. Um, I'm sick to death of hearing things from tight tight narrow minded. That song. Just give me some truth. Yeah. Right. Right. He could have written it this morning. Everybody right. says, what would John Lennon be writing if he were alive today? He wrote it. Yeah, he's already <laughs> written it. And it's so apropos for both parties to listen to that. Yes. They need to listen to that. The world needs yes. to listen to that. We want to hear the truth now. We, we're tired of all this bullshit. Yeah. It just it wears us down. It yeah. wears our minds down yeah. to a numbs us. Exactly. Rock and roll always tell the truth. Yes. Robin Zander, Cheap Trick, thank you so much for coming oh, by. Oh, thanks for having me. Time. I appreciate that. The music lives on forever, yeah. and it's because of the passion and what you do. You have to have the talent to do it or it doesn't work, but talent alone isn't enough. You know, you've got the commitment and the drive. That's what we learned from the Beatles is like you got to keep just grind it. Go, go, go. Put in the hard work. We. Yeah. It looks effortless because it's fun, but you have to put in the hard work to get to that level yeah. and keep going. Brilliantly done, sir. Thank you. You're welcome.
Thank you, Robin Zander, for being in the studio with us. Ken Dashow's Beatles Revolution number 40 with two special guests. To the man who wrote this song, along with Bruce Springsteen and Southside Johnny, now doing it on tour with his own band, Little Steven and the Disciples of Soul. Welcome back to Ken Dashow's Beatles Revolution, baby. Stevie, great to have you back. How are you, Kenny? I'm good. I'm good. We got another little Stephen the Disciples of Soul tour starting up. Yes, we do. Congratulations. We're going out. How do people find out where you're going to be? LittleStephen.com, <laughs> perhaps? Or uh, RockandRollForever.org, because it's a Which, combination of... Uh... So here's the thing about RockandRollForever.org. You're doing something that I've never heard of any other musicians doing. And I think it's a beautiful, beautiful gift. Tell them about what you're doing about teachers with this tour. Well, we have this curriculum. Uh, the Rock and Roll Forever Foundation uh, has been creating this this uh, music history curriculum for schools called teachrock.org, where uh, anybody can go to and use our curriculum for free. It's completely meets all the state standards. and About uh, bringing music back to schools, music yeah, education. Yeah. In, in the history, because, you know, um, we, we, we tr what's a longer story that we won't bother with now. But anyway, we ended up with, with history because it's cross-curricular, it's easier. Uh, it can be taught in history class, social studies class, English class, music class. And we focus on middle schools um, so that we don't run into the whole no child left behind stuff, which is... You know, trying to improve the math and sciences uh, in high schools, but it eliminated all of the arts classes, okay? So we're right. trying to make up for that and balance that out with keeping an interest in music. And, and, and so we have that. We've been working on it now for 10 years. We've just gone public this, this past year. We have over 100 lessons already up at teachrock.org. But for this tour, for the Disciples of Soul tour, we want it to be a celebration of the teaching profession. You know, uh, they're being assaulted all across this country. I mean, there's strikes going on everywhere. Everywhere strikes because they're so underpaid and, and undervalued and underappreciated. We want to just do one big thank you to the teachers of America and invite them to the show first of all for free, but also in the afternoon we're doing a workshop uh, for the curriculum. So our foundation people will be there. And I and I will and I will uh, be there also, and uh, basically talk the teachers through the curriculum on how on how to teach it and all that, and uh, and then they can come to the show for free. So. And that's anywhere in America, and you're doing it in Europe as well, yep. worldwide. Yep. Good yep. on you. Yep. Little Stephen, go to teachrock.org to learn more. Teachrock.org. Yeah, and teachers uh, themselves can sign up with Christine. Christine at rockandrollforever.org. E either way. It's funny, It's you toured for so long coming back to Bruce Springsteen, doing these massive multi-year tours. You'd think you'd want to take a break after that and say, oh, I'll just relax for a bit. You went back and did another TV show, Lillehammer, that was on Netflix. Take it easy. No. What's the first thing you do with Bruce Springsteen on Broadway? You go back and put together a new <laughs> Disciples of Soul band, record an album, Soul Fire, and go right back out on the road. <laughs> well, I know something's wrong with me. <laughs> I don't know what it is. You know, I got into rock and roll so I wouldn't have to work. So I, I don't know. And what you become happened. the hardest working man in show business <laughs> with the Underground Garage radio show and doing this and movies. <laughs> Something went very wrong, Kenny. So how did it feel like, you know, when you're a kid and you put together a band, and we talk about the Beatles and producer Andrew with us. 
as a young musician in his band, 100,000. It's different when you put together a band with a bunch of teenage friends versus being an adult with incredible success behind you, this history that you're touring your whole life. How do you start now and go, okay, I need a band. What am I going to do? It's real different. I mean, it, it, it became a particularly different for me because of the nature of my music. I mean, when you start off, uh, I think everybody does pretty much the same thing, which is you use the guys in your neighborhood. You know, you, you use people that, right. you, you know, that you know. Uh, that's where I think all of it starts. It all starts very local. Uh, you know, guys in your class in school or, or, you know, you find each other maybe at a club seeing a, a band you both like, you know. And then you start, you, you find that four or five guys or girls and... and um, and you start to, you know, create uh, an identity uh, which is based on who you like first and foremost, right? Right. And uh, you know, okay, you know, we like this band, that band, this band. Okay, we'll 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 cover songs by them. Very important, a very important stage that that a lot of people are skipping now. But you need to you need to really do that. You need to you need to cover the songs of your favorite bands for a number of reasons. First of all, to set your standards higher when you start to write songs. You know, you need to have a standard. And the only way you're going to have a standard is if you already have analyzed and taken apart your favorite songs and actually learned them and actually performed them and absorbed, uh, absorbed them, you know. Uh, you, have to, you have to be very analytical at first and take things apart. Okay, what's the bass doing? Why is the bass doing that? What are the, what are the chord changes? What, 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 you know, what's the melody that goes with those chord changes? Why is this creating this emotion in me? You know, you have to really try and understand all that. Uh, and then, and the more you understand of that, the better writer you're going to be, right? So all, all that begins with that process of just finding people who have something in common and, and that ambition to actually get on stage, you know, maybe, you know, uh, fail and fail and fail and, 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 you know, and have some fun with it whether you're making money or not. You know, it starts with that kind of pure thing. Right. And then goes all the way to the other extreme, which is where I am now, where I can't even I can't even use rock people anymore in my band, you know, because my stuff's gotten so sophisticated now and it's so big, you know, in a fifteen piece band with five horns and, and string parts and background vocal parts and all that interwoven, it has to be a bit more precise. It has to be um, but you've always loved that Phil Spector sound. When I think about you, it's so much of what you did with Southside Johnny and the Jukes, and even you're producing Hungry Heart. You know, the Glockenspiel and, and songs very much is that Spectre-esque wall of sound. A bit of it. I mean, not exactly as big as it is now, you know. Uh, right. I really went back to that for the Darlene Love album uh, two years ago, you know, in- introducing Darlene Love is right. when I fell back in love with that big sound. It's still not quite the Phil Spector thing, which of course I studied, and 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 he's one of the all-time most important producers. But I my production uh, sense begins with Lieber and Stoller, which was just before Phil Spector, you know. And simultaneously with the Phil Spector records, I was into the Four Seasons records and Motown records. These are the big these are the big sounding records, you know, that I loved growing right. up. Which we you know we did the four or five piece version of those.
those big records, you know. Right. Uh, you know, just like those guys in the 50s and 60s were doing a smaller versions of what the big bands had been doing in the 30s and 40s, right? Right. You just know. as the Beatles were doing Little Richard and Chuck Berry and starting off and doing Till There Was You and Paul covering some, you know, Broadway shows. Yeah, but but without the orchestra right. at first, you know, and without without the big... We'll without, figure out how with, we can do it. That's right. Without the bigness, because that's all they could afford, right? naturally. Right. So, you know, so now we're kind of going the other way. Now, instead of doing the minimal sort of, you know, uh, uh, version of, of these things, we're now going back to the literal... Full-blown 15-piece yes. on stage. So I, I need session guys who are, you know, uh, the best in the in the business, which is what I have. And not only session guys who are great, but they can also perform live, which is a very, very a small group head. of people. Yeah, yeah. very so, different so, head. You know, so it's the opposite of where you begin. You begin with this, like... Let's just go have some fun with some, you know, guys who can barely play, you know. <laughs> right. and, and along the way, you know, you find out guys who can't play at all and you have to replace them and we, all that. We've talked you know? to so many of the contemporaries of the Beatles in the 60s. And as producer Andrew knows, and you've been with me, hearing everybody has that same story. Graham Nash and his high school buddy, Alan Clark. Right. You know, and everybody was just with your high school friends from you two, you know, Larry putting an ad up, uh, one of form a band on the school bulletin board. And it's exactly. just your friends. And I, I go back to it a hundred times, but John Lodge and his friends in Birmingham, you know, El Diablo and the Sombreros, and they're the big local <laughs> act. What do you mean? We're the opening act with the Beatles are coming. They're from Liverpool. We're at Birmingham. We're the, we're Phyllis club. Yeah. Sorry. You're the opening act. And he sees these guys. And instead of it being a handsome guy in the front and some musicians behind him, there's three people in the front and a drummer in the back. And he had never seen more than one singer. There was always one singer and a bunch of guys. Yeah. He said, you don't understand. You've changed the whole world of how you set up on stage. Otherwise, it would have been Bruce Springsteen, the E Street Band. You're not standing next to him stage left and well, no yeah. stage right. It's not how you would set up. Right. And, 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 and we were the hybrid. You know, we were the first real hybrid where... It used the old nomenclature, if you will, of somebody and the somebodies. Right. But yet we were actually a band, which is, you know, that hybrid that became that new idea. Right. Because in the end, it is it is about bands, uh, you know, and, and, and the the solo guy thing is a, is a whole different sensibility. Have it you is, seen the uh, Elvis Presley documentary on HBO? I just watched the first half last night. I, I thought it's brilliant. I learned a lot from it. And yeah. one of the things that Priscilla said, if people said that the Beatles blew Elvis away, said, no, it just changed the game. It went from a singer to bands. You weren't a singer, you were bands. And Elvis was a singer. He's an individual talent. Well, And in a very broad stroke way, the point's made. You know, it's something you said on Breakfast of the Beatles years ago. The, the biggest thing you learn from this special is that Colonel Tom Parker was absolutely the worst guy to ever care about an artist. He took him. What did you say, Andrew, last week? You had the line. In oh, there's there's the phrase, shoot for the moon and you'll maybe you'll land on the roof. But Tom Parker was shooting for the first floor. <laughs> and he and pretty much hit it all the floor. time. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is, these are all complicated statements you're making. Now we have to we have to we have to analyze what you just said a little bit. Uh, first of all, when I made the argument, you know, to get you know Bill Black and, and, and DJ Fontana in, into the Hall of Fame, part of the you know I I had to hold up the picture of of Elvis Presley's first records, which says Elvis with Scotty and Bill. 
So right. It, so it was a band, all right? Yeah. It was, it was a band that created that extraordinary thing we call rockabilly now, you know, between them and, and the rock and roll trio and, and Carl Perkins. I mean, you know, take your pick as to, you know, who was more important, but really that, that Elvis, Scotty, and Bill thing was, was I think, the center of that universe, you know? And then and then DJ Fontana later on, on drums a little bit later. And so I think I think, you know, yes, Elvis was special, but he was never better than when he was with those guys. Okay. We know you know that Agreed. was the first that was the first rockabilly band, if you will, you know? And then yes, he became he became more of a pop guy and more of a pop solo guy, which I think lessened him personally. You know, that's just my own view. You know well, Don McLean was up here a few weeks ago and I said, how cool is it? Elvis Presley records your song and I love you so and remember Andrew, he laughs and goes, I hated that. He goes, I made a lot of money from it. But I don't want, I don't, it's Elvis. I don't want Elvis singing one of my love songs. I want him doing Mystery Train. <laughs> I mean, I made money, he goes, and it was great for me. But just be Elvis. And well, I, I understand what he meant. Yeah, yeah. And and, and Elvis had a second a second burst of, of extraordinary, you know, artistry when he hooked up with Lieber and Stoller, you know? Yes. That, that was, you know. And look, I... I I I said this many times and it's a bit controversial, but but with all of Colonel Tom Parker's negativity, which you know we all know about, he was the advocate that he needed at the time, and I and I and I will and I will defend that forever. You know, uh, I, again, I I felt it was very important to try and get the four big managers into the Rock and Roll of Fame. In the end, he was too controversial. Albert Grossman was too controversial, but we got. Brian Epstein and, and, and Andrew Legoldman. Thank you for getting those two in. You know, but Parker, but, but, but but Parker, but Parker should go in, but with a big asterisk. Okay, but but <laughs> but, but but nobody should think ever in their lives. And I know this is hard for critics to say, to, for journalists and everybody else to think about. Nobody's success is inevitable. I'm sorry, I, I know better. Okay, and 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 whether it was Elvis, Bob Dylan, the Beatles, or the Stones. Okay, all four of them were laughed at, were rejected by everybody, yep. were spit on, were ignored, okay, yep. until the advocate came along and, and, and stuck with him and gave him that encouragement and, and got him through. Now, of course, Elvis had Sam Phillips, and who was, you know, the right. genius of all time, and, and, and certainly the guy who invented it all, all of it, right. okay, as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, Sam had knew his own limitations, you know. He was not a salesman in that sense, okay. Right. He, was an, he was an artist, okay. He's a genius artist, but he wasn't that guy who could go out there and sell him. And he knew that, you know, Tom Parker could, could do better for him. Anyway, but, but, but let me just say one sure. last thing. The one, the one biggest negative, as far as I'm concerned, with, with Colonel Tom Parker was... Uh, was the fact that he 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 ended up separating Elvis from Lieber and Stoller because uh, Lieber and Stoller he says were turning him too black, and he wanted he wanted Elvis to be <laughs> a white pop star, and he didn't he didn't like uh, Lieber and Stoller's influences on him, and that, that's the, that's the biggest negative. I My think. takeaway from the special is you know? he didn't like anybody's influence on yeah. Elvis. Yeah. Hey hey, uh, I mean Elvis says in the special, I'd love to tour Europe, I'd love to see the world. Yeah. No no, you can't go. We'll make we'll make movies and they'll go around the world. Why? Because he was afraid if he left the country, he couldn't, he couldn't get, get back. back in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That so, was that was so unfortunate. Why not yeah. send Elvis out with a tour manager? Why? Because you're afraid that somebody else would go, hey, hey, 
That was extremely Why are you unfortunate. Stuck? Extremely unfortunate in a close second on the on the <laughs> negativity list. But <laughs> first was separating him from Lieber was still can you imagine where that might have gone? You know? This, the I songs mean, were real, the songs were relevant and forget it. Jailhouse Rock, the King Creole and all that stuff. I mean, that was his best movie. You know, the two best movies. And, 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 you know, but and, and, as Andrew and I were looking back on it the other week. You know, I'm not saying he ever would have written because Elvis wasn't a writer, so to speak, the way you or Bruce or the Beatles or the Stones became. But, you know, 1967, when we get Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and Magical Mystery Tour, Elvis gives us Clambake and Harem Scarum. You couldn't be further away from where you should be. And I'm not saying he should dress in bell bottoms with long hair, but be Elvis. And look, Brian Setzer and Rockabilly comes around again. You know, one of the things I said to Andrew is like, you know, when Sinatra in the 70s was trying to wear leisure suits and puka beads, I don't know what that is, but when he went back to wearing a tuxedo and walk out on stage with a glass of scotch, that's Sinatra. That's the guy I want to see. It's the guy you want to see. And, and musically, you know, I don't think Frank really went, you know, too far off the road. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, during those years, those 67, those real hippie years, you know, that's when I'm picturing, I don't know, I may have the years a little bit off, but, you know, that's life. And, yeah, no, uh, he was still know, writing songs. He you know, Beatles uh, lost to, uh, to Sinatra, Man and His Music was album of the year. It was over a very Revolver. good year, right? Yeah. Right, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, so he was doing art, extraordinary artistic work at that time. So uh, Elvis than, could have done that. He, there's a yeah. line in the special where he said, you know what's worse than watching a bad movie? Making them. Yeah, he knew he wasn't stupid. No, and 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 a close third on the negativity <laughs> list. Of you notice there's a list. This list is growing. Yeah, well, no, no, no. I'm aware of it all. <laughs> Believe me, uh, but I still stick to my original statement, which is, without him, he may not have made it. Okay, and I believe that. But anyway, uh, but but the third was, was certainly talking him out of doing those movies that it, that he, he turned down all those great movie roles and. Uh, you know, who knows whether he could have handled them or not. You know, he didn't want him to try. And then making him sing in the movies was, of course, uh, and they the, were crappy. The beginning songs. of the end. They you were know? crappy songs for the most part, other than the Libra Installer. Yeah, there were some know? good ones, but yeah. they were mostly crap. Steve, little Steven is my guest here with me and producer Andrew. Uh, we're talking about, as you call them, it's a great word, advocates. Um, one time at Fester Beetle fans, I'm having lunch with uh, Billy J. Kramer with our friend and somebody who worked, uh, without going into names, don't need to, work with Brian and the Beatles. And he happened to mention that, you know, the Beatles were so amazing, they were so great. You know, look, Brian did great, but, you know, honestly, it was all about the Beatles. Anybody could have managed them. And Billy just jumped on and said, then why didn't you do it? You saw him at the Cavern Club. Why didn't you sign him to a management contract? Uh, well, if anybody could do it and you saw him before Brian, why didn't you do it? Well, I'm not a manager. Well, Brian wasn't a manager. He ran a record store in yeah. his family's business. Yeah. After the fact, anybody could say you could have seen anything. That's right. And I, that's you know, easy. Monday morning quarterback. That's, that's right. easy. That's right. And I'm sorry. I I know I I know how this business works. And I'm telling you, the people the the difference between people who are equally great, who made it, and the ones who didn't, you you'll find a manager. You'll find a manager was the difference. You know, I mean, look what happened with the Kinks. You know, the great example, right? Shell family. They should have been right there. Yep. With no, no, no. Shell was the producer. Oh. But they, but their manager, kind of wasn't wasn't around. Didn't come to him. Couldn't come with him to America when everybody else came. 
They got into trouble because the manager wasn't around. Right, right. They got, got kicked with, out with the union. Right. They got banned from America, and they didn't. You know, it took them a while to get back up to that status that they deserved. Right. They should have been just as big as the Stones and, and the Who. They right? had the writing. You know? They had the playing. And, and they were. They were. You know. And and because and it was because of that because of the management situation that I think uh, they they weren't as big as they should have been. You know. But anyway, it you know those those four guys you know to me are, are on Valhalla as far as with all the content controversies associated with them and I know all the controversy with all four of them okay still you should never take it away the fact that those guys were, were there and, and they were advocates and they and they pushed and pushed and pushed and, and, and made that made them happen you know which bringing it full circle and it's something we've touched on before so here's producer Andrew with a young band 100,000 playing out in clubs you know recording an album is that are those guys out there anymore? Is there a guy going to live shows? Is there a, a woman? It's not even just a guy, but who's looking for his band? No. Maybe they're great. Maybe he sucks. But how does he find no. somebody in no. 2018? Because well, you know he plays now, real music. They're looking at one thing, and it's not even just the music business. It's 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 the acting business to some extent too. Oh yeah, they look at the followers. Okay, they're not they're not going and seeing how good the band is. They don't, they're not they're not analyzing how good the songs are. Can the guy sing? Can the guy play? How many followers do they have on Twitter or, or uh, you know, whatever the social media? And, and I think it yeah. goes back in a way to what you were saying and a theme that we've talked about before, where at some point somebody who is outside the band, someone has to believe in that for. Uh, more or less on the merit of the art, but in other cases, social followers, somebody has to believe and somebody has to advocate for whatever that is, whether that's a record label, whether it's a manager, whether it's just a friend who knows a guy who knows a guy, but there, there has to be some sort of outside influence. There's with social media, there's some potential that you'll go viral and, and then those people will come to you that way, but there's always that aspect. You need that outside force. And there are so many benefactor. pirates and charlatans out there. Andrew, tell Stephen about the uh, the band that you opened for that bought the ad in the British paper. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you have to tell him this. So so there's this British magazine, magazine in quotes, called Fireworks, I think. And they go around emailing bands. I don't know how they find them to basically buy press coverage. So my band got this email years ago and me being sort of adjacent to the music business, I knew what it was. I went to school for journalism. I know that you don't pay for press. A band that we got connected with in the last year did not have that knowledge. knowledge. <laughs> you shouldn't do that. It was like 80 bucks or something out of, out of their pockets. So not a huge expense, but still, when you're in a band, you could spend 80 bucks on gas and get to, you know, <laughs> Pittsburgh or something. You know it. And play a Definitely. gig. Definitely, yeah. So, we play a couple of shows with them and the magazine comes out and they get sent a PDF of the article. And the band is called One Time Mountain. We are called 100,000. They publish the correct band name. It was a picture of my band. Wow. So that's what they got for their 80 or 90 bucks. <laughs> it's complicated and always has been. And the truth of the matter is, uh, to some extent, uh, you have to face uh, the fact that unless someone has a reason to exploit you, they're probably not going to. 
okay? In other words, nobody, very few people are going to do it out of the kindness of their hearts. Very few people are going to have a completely fair contract. So you have to face the fact at some point, can this person really help me? And if they can help me, you know, and the, and the contract is not exactly uh, great, um, it, you know, it's, it's something that sometimes you do have to consider, only in the sense of the history, you know, history suggests that every single group that we know of uh, started off with a bad deal, you know. Right. But and, you know and, what? You know, the, here's Brian Epstein, this golden angel who, like, cares for his band, signs him, is doing everything for Billy J, for Scylla Black, for Jerry, for the people he has in his stable. And he is altruistic and he's not taking kickbacks and this and that. And he's, to me, He's the gold standard of what a manager can do, and and he did make plenty of money. Well, he was the beginning, I think, of the of the of the gentleman manager, right? Right. I mean, you know, there was yeah, you know, they were <laughs> they were animals before <laughs> him. I mean, you know, they were just like you know, uh, they were tough. They were tough guys, and, and uh, he was the first, uh, the sort of civilized, you know, the, the, the civilized version of it in in the rock and roll world and i think he's i think he set a good standard for for for, for management if, if right. you guys want to see just how dirty the music business was in the 60s i've mentioned this before 20 times i'll say it another 20 there's a documentary on itunes that little steven narrates called bang the burt burns story it makes the sopranos look, look like mr rogers neighborhood <laughs> it was it's the worst i never even i said to you when i saw it i went I had no idea it was that bad. I thought it was bad, but I didn't know it was that bad. Yeah, yeah, and you know, the only the only good thing, and I tell people this, you know, and I've been talking about this for many, many years. I mean, I've done whole speeches about this subject. But the only good thing about those old days, the best thing about it was, no matter how much people were exploited or the contracts were were were, were lopsided, you know, the the good news is once you got famous, you know, you were you were famous forever, you know, and 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 I and I and I to this day I talk about you know the the, the pain and suffering that Chuck Berry carried with him right till the day he died, the hatred and and how how angry he was his whole life at being ripped off. And, you know, and somebody should have sat down with him. And if I was friendlier with him, I would have, you know. I would have sat Chuck Berry down and said, listen, man, the contract should have been more fair, okay? We all, they should have been transparent. but And the deal should have been very clear. We're going to make you famous. We're going to take all the, all the record royalties, okay? Because we got to pay a bunch of people off. We got to do all these things, right? You know, and we're going to make you famous. And then for the rest of your life, you know, Chuck Berry didn't go on stage so he put 10000 in cash in a guitar case. Right. Four or five days a week for 50 years. <laughs> now add that money up. And it's real up, money. And then add up what they're stealing from those 59-cent singles, you know, tw 20 cents of which right. went, went into packaging, <laughs> and the other 10 cents went to payola. And you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay? And they shouldn't, they shouldn't have done it that way. Okay? They shouldn't have stolen that money. But whatever they stole was about 1% of what you were about to make the rest of your life after they made you famous, you know? And, you know, people look you at it couldn't see that, it. You know what I'm saying? Couldn't see it. No, no. As opposed to Little Richard, who always was the opposite. He's like, you know, people were like, don't you hate Pat Boone? He says, why? 
you know, he turned a bunch of white people onto my music, you know? Isn't that something? He was able to get it. Just, you know, the Beatles, as they grew, they got so big, they were bigger than their touring capabilities. You couldn't hear them. I always thought if the sound quality was better, if we had now the PA system that you use, well, maybe the it. Beatles could have kept touring. Maybe the mu it would have been different. Well, there's a reason why Paul and Ringo are still out there, okay? Right, it's because, because they having, can... it's an enjoyable experience <laughs> now, okay? You know, they don't need to do it, all right? They're doing it because they're enjoying it, you know? And, of course, the technology is, is right. helping help that, yeah. And that helps it happen. Little Stephen Van Sant, the tour, Little Stephen and the Disciples of Soul starting out. And any teacher in America or in the world who wants to come can come for free, come in the afternoon, to learn about bringing music back into schools, go to teachrock.org, teachrock.org. I think that's so cool of you to give that for teachers. To that's giving back. You know, I just feel I feel you know a lot of a lot of sympathy and empathy, you know, with them and for them. I, mean, I just you know. Nobody appreciates what these, you know, they're, they're buying pencils for the kids. You know what I mean? They're, they're out of their meager salaries. You know what I mean? They're trying, you know, they're trying, they actually take money out of their pockets to like buy paper and pencils. And I mean, it's like pathetic, man, as, as we send another 30 billion to the military, you know? Right. Little Steven, and I'm wrapping up. If they came around today, and it's something the audience always asks me a lot, do you think the Beatles, do you think they break through in 2018? Mm hmm. But let me tell you the truth, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough question. First of all, the only format that can play them is the Underground Garage. Right. <laughs> <laughs> all right? We, we've introduced over 1,000 new bands in the last 15 years, 1,000. Fantastic. You know, because we can, and, and because it's important to do that and keep this thing refreshed, you know? Uh, but the Beatles, I mean, we all like to think that it would, they'd break through, but, you know, they better have a Brian Epstein with them and a George Martin, too. You know, and, and an underground garage to play them. <laughs> Amen to that. Stephen, thanks for coming up, always. <laughs> My pleasure, Ken. And that'll wrap up Ken Dashev's Beatles Revolution, episode 40. Thanks to little Stephen and Robin Zander of Cheap Trick for coming up. And I love your ideas for future podcasts. We'll be doing Beatles Go to the Movies in just a few weeks. And we'll do another part about breaking into the music business. We touched on a lot of it with little Stephen today. But we'll get the panel up again about promotion and arts and record labels. And Stephen should join us if he's around for that. Thank you, guys.